This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Welcome to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams. It's the risk that gives the protest its power. Man, is that the truth or what? Especially in the world of sports. Those wise words come from today's guest, Dave Zirin. Dave has been writing for years about sports through a political lens. Or is it politics through a sports lens? Either way, he always has his finger on the pulse of activist athletes who are making big impacts in their sports and in their communities. Many are way ahead of their time, because that's what Dave himself actually is. In 2011, he co-wrote a book with former star Olympian John Carlos, who raised a fist in a black power salute at the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City from the metal podium, no less. Dave's a master of resetting an iconic moment in sports history to present-day society, often in the athlete's own words. His most recent book looks to Colin Kaepernick, and so will we in our conversation. But it's more about the wave of activism that sprung up once Cap started to kneel during the national anthem in 2016. Across America, young men and women were inspired to take a knee and take action, to protest police brutality and the unequal treatment of black people, and to amplify the voices of their own communities. But many paid the price, losing athletic scholarships or coaching jobs, and fearing for their actual physical safety. And Colin Kaepernick still to this day remains unsigned. So we'll get into all that, the sacrifice and the obstacles that come with standing up or taking a knee for what's right. Like Dave said, it's the risk that gives the protest its power. And he should know, to this date, Dave's written 11 books about it. He's also the sports editor for The Nation magazine and host of the Edge of Sports podcast. He's a very busy man, but he chose to spend his time with us, and I'm glad he did. Now let's get to it. Here's my conversation with the always excellent Dave Zyron. Thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here. You know, I live just 10 minutes down the road from uh, College Park, Maryland. Ah. And I, as someone who has been a, a fan of college basketball since the days when the Big East formed as a, just a little one watching it on ESPN, I'm not sure basketball at the collegiate level ever got better. The platonic ideal is Jay Williams, Juan Dixon on that court. So I got to tell you really quickly about that. And I have to tell you, everything that Juan Dixon had been through in his life, Dave, mm-hmm. from the loss of his mother and how he dealt with adversity, even though we had some battles, I was so happy to see them actually win a championship that mm-hmm. following year after we won it. It was incredible to see it all come to fruition for them. But that's a different conversation. Yes. Look, I, <laughs> I, I, I really want to congratulate you. I mean, on your 11th book, The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World, um, you've written so many, but I, I was truly blown away by it. And I think on the impetus of a new NFL season, um, there's so much to be said about where we are now, politic-wise, mm-hmm. sports-wise, but I want you to take me back to that moment in time and explain why you chose that action as the framing of your book relating to Cap and taking a knee around the national anthem? Well, I'm glad you said the word framing because this is a book called The Kaepernick Effect that's not even necessarily about Colin Kaepernick. But of course, it's framed 
by his actions. You see, I believe that Colin Kaepernick made a tremendous gift to the world of not just sports, but the world of activism, the world of protest, the world of direct action, uh, the world of civil disobedience. And what he did was he bequeathed a language that anybody could replicate. That's the gift that Colin Kaepernick bequeathed to a generation of young athletes. And so what I set about doing was trying to find athletes across the country who took that knee and their experience. And very often, the story really begins after they take the knee, when they have to deal with the fallout, when they have to deal with teammates, when they have to deal with coaches, when they have to deal with fans, when they have to deal sometimes with death threats, sometimes with in-their-face physical threats aimed at themselves, their family, little siblings. Now, that's the original reason why I wrote the book, like just because I wanted this history to be preserved and to have it not be thrown into the memory hole as these people's histories so often are. But the next step, though, as I was putting the book in the hands of my publisher was the summer of 2020. It was the hmm. police killing of George Floyd. I went back. I said to the publisher, stop the presses. And I went back. It was the largest set of demonstrations in the history of the United States. So I went about calling every single person that I interviewed. And it turns out every single one, without exception, was either in the streets or organizing people to get in the streets or speaking out and inspiring people to get into the streets. And that made me realize that while many roads may have led us to the summer of 2020, one of them ran straight through the athletic fields of the United mm. States. And that's a story worth telling. So, Dave, I, I had a pretty challenging time during these moments because in, in the sports sphere, you would hear a lot of feedback from people that would utilize the, the realm of athletics by saying, I don't come to listen and watch athletics to hear politics. Yeah, I mean, what I found was that many of them came to this hard lesson, you know, earned through their, their sweat, their fear, their willingness to confront power. They learned that while people say sports and politics don't mix, what they really mean is that sports and a certain kind of politics don't mix. And I believe in what this country says it stands for, but I don't feel that reality in my life because honestly, to put it bluntly, because people who represent the state of the United States, namely hmm. the police, are people who don't make me feel safe, but make me feel scared. And we need to express that in a public way. And we need to start conversations. That's what I kept hearing from the people I was interviewing. They weren't trying to, you know, defund the police. They weren't trying to, you know, turn the world on its head. What they were trying to do was start conversations in their community and be heard and be seen. I'll never forget young one, young woman who, who took a knee at a very small college in Iowa and found herself basically kicked out of school for it. Uh, she said to me, wow. yeah, she said to me, you know, I made people feel uncomfortable. Uh, but what I would always say to them is if you feel uncomfortable for four minutes, then maybe you have a sense of what it's like to be a black girl from the city coming to rural Iowa to play sports. Maybe you know how I feel 24 hours a day. You now get that for four minutes. So that was the goal. And I also think that's what spurred a great deal of, of the resentment. I mean, 
it was a polarizing thing. Like some people in the stands, and let's be clear, when I say some people, I'm talking about some white people. Some white people were like, wow, you know, maybe this is something that we should listen to. I think that you also had a canary in the coal mine with a lot of these kneeling protests in the late teens that there was going to be a backlash and it was going to be ferocious because the way people responded to as peaceful and as subtle a gesture as just taking a knee for a couple of minutes was oftentimes beyond ferocious. You know, and so sometimes that that small ask can provoke something so large in a response just because I think people fear that, well, if you start thinking you can take a knee during the anthem, Mm. Who knows what you're going to ask for next? Mm-hmm. And that's the great fear. You know, Dave, I'm just sitting here thinking about all the things that went down for Colin and all the aftermath. And it led me to think, how prepared do you think he actually was for that, to be so central to this movement? You know, I think for Colin, this was a case of having greatness thrust upon him. I mean, he was not someone who grew up in an activist family by any stretch of the imagination. You know, he was not someone who grew up steeled for the moment that he rose to. He was somebody who in the summer of 2016 was just incredibly frustrated by seeing the killings of people like Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, killings caught on camera that then went viral, which is its own real form of of violence and psychological torment that I don't think we talk about nearly enough. Like, yes, it's a good thing that we get to videotape people more easily, videotape police and and create more of a culture of accountability, which frankly just did not exist before phones and videotape and the rest of it. Um, Videotape, listen how old I am saying the word videotape. (laughs) Digital recording, you know, videotape. Yeah, to throw throw the tape in my Betamax. but 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 it it has created a culture of accountability. Yet that also produces a culture of trauma as people have to see and re-see uh, these killings. You're talking about Colin Kaepernick as somebody who is just so frustrated with it. He decides to sit uh, during a game on on I believe it was August the 19th preseason game that he wasn't even starting. And if it wasn't for Steve Weish of the NFL Network. Uh, noticing, and this is an argument yep. I would argue also for diversity in the media room, because a whole group of people saw it just like Steve did, but didn't see a story. Yep. And Steve, Howard University graduate, who had his finger on the pulse of what had been happening in this country over the summer, saw the connection, or at least saw the potential that there might be a connection, and went down and spoke to Colin Kaepernick about it. And that's how it got started. And that's how the uproar ensued. And it was really as a response to the uproar that we get the famous story that Colin uh, speaks to a former NFL player who is also a Marine. And they come up with this idea of taking a knee because in one of the great miscalculations of our time, thought it would actually calm the haters down. Mm. Uh, calm the the Trumpists down, calm the people who were so upset that he sat during the anthem and then spoke out against police brutality to Steve Weish. All the people upset about that would see that it was actually a movement of dignity and wanting the United States to be the best it could possibly be. That's what taking a knee was going to be about. But what Colin Kaepernick learned was that, you know, if people don't want to hear the message, they're not going to care how the messenger dresses it up. Bring me back to where we are now, because he just had a preseason with Las Vegas Raiders. The Raiders have hired the offensive coordinator from the New England Patriots and Josh McDaniels. They have an incredible quarterback. 
Uh, they got Devontae Adams from the Green Bay Packers. And the Raiders have historically been a franchise that has pretty much given their middle finger to the NFL, right? I, 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 I thought, Dave, for sure mm-hmm. that Cap was actually going to have a legit chance to play with the Raiders. Do you think there's any chance he gets signed? When the Raiders news came out, I really did think to myself, there's some hope here. Because I knew McDaniels liked him. And I knew Mark Davis and the tradition, the franchise owner and the tradition of his father, Al Davis, had just had enough mm-hmm. uh, with the way the NFL had been treating him. And so I thought the stars are really aligning here. A place like Vegas, you know, this might be where Colin finally gets his shot. But, but we haven't seen it. And now training camp is done. And despite all of Mark Davis's words about this being a franchise that would be open to Colin Kaepernick, you're just not seeing it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that, that's that's why uh, Dr. Harry Edwards, the great sports sociologist, I used this phrase earlier, but th- this is where Harry Edwards uses it. He calls it the canary in the coal mine uh, in terms of the place of the black athlete in U.S. society. He said, if you look at how black athletes are treated, it is usually a precursor to how people are going to be treated culturally throughout every community. And so you have to pay close attention to it because if they're being told to be silenced, you're going to start to see that ripple through the society. And you know it's, it's hard not to see that as prophetic given the state of the country right now. Dave, that was one of the things actually on my pod recently I had a conversation with my ESPN colleague and host of First Take, Stephen A. Smith, about this. And he took us on a journey, a flashback to the NFL setting up a workout for Cap. But there seemed to be a dispute over signing a waiver, and Cap instead held his own Mm -hmm. workout at a high school facility. You know, can you just take me through your take on that Mm -hmm. whole situation? Because Stephen A. pretty much said, for for lack of a better term, that's why he was blackballed. Mm -hmm. Because of that opportunity that he chose to deny to do it his way, that left an extra bad taste in a lot of owners and the league's mouth. Well, do you remember the t-shirt that Kaepernick wore that day? It said simply Kunta Kinte on it. And Kunta Kinte, of course, the protagonist of Roots. And the, the, the part where the name is most projected in Roots at its most powerful is when LeVar Burton, as Kunta Kinte, is being whipped and told to accept the name of Toby. And he refuses and keeps saying Kunta Kinte, Kunta Kinte. And to me, This was about Colin Kaepernick saying, I want to go back in the National Football League, but I'm not going to do it on bended knee. And Mm -hmm. I think what Stephen A., with with all due respect, uh, leaves out when when he tells this narrative, and, you know, he's obviously been speaking about it for quite a few years. This is one that, that Stephen A., when asked about Kaepernick, he was closely to. I think he, he doesn't include that the NFL wasn't going to allow any recording of the actual workout doesn't include that was being held on a day where there's no way a head coach could have actually come. It was going to be people on the most lower end of the scouting totem pole was going to turn out and see Colin Kaepernick. And they were going to do it in conditions that uh, he was going to have no control over. Now, obviously you're dealing with a situation where there's not a lot of trust. And so if you're talking about a situation where, okay, we're not going to be able to independently videotape it. Uh, it's going to be people who don't have really any power in the National Football League. So they can come out and say whatever they want about the workout. And it'll just be like our word against theirs. Uh, you know, we need to do this in a space 
that allows for ultimate transparency, which was something that the NFL was not going to allow. And so Colin Kaepernick was saying, you might turn this into a circus, but I'm not going to be a clown. I'm not going to be Toby. I dare for you to tell me that what you just heard wasn't powerful. I just love the way Dave uses sports as a microcosm for what's happening in society overall. After the break, we look to athletes who've been overlooked in their activism. That means we're talking female athletes, and that means we're talking Brittany Griner. This is The Limits from NPR. Stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. This message comes from NPR sponsor Bluehost. Try Bluehost Cloud, the hosting plan made for WordPress creators by WordPress experts. With 100% uptime, fast load times, and 24-7 support, your sites can handle high traffic spikes. Visit Bluehost.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why accessibility is central to Betterment's mission. The real innovation for Betterment was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies. That includes dollar-cost averaging. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. Learn more about automated investing technology at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance is not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Osea. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. They both come in giftable boxes with savings up to $46 and free shipping for a limited time. Go to OSEAMalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide. On NPR's Throughline. We cannot function for 24 hours without COBOL because it's in our smartphone, our tablet, our laptop. And as a consequence, the lives of the people living in that part of the Congo descended into just a catastrophe. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. This is a fact, and we all know that there's a double standard between male and female athletes. Men are typically paid more than women, which is why folks like Megan Rapino, a former Limits guest, by the way, had to fight for years to win equal pay in soccer. There's also the issue of their voices not being heard, especially politically. And as our guest Dave Zirin will ask us, if Tom Brady or Steph Curry were in Brittany Griner's situation, Would we be covering sports like everything was normal? I think you know the answer to that question. And Dave's rescue dog, Sadie, was even barking in agreement. Back to the show. Hey, I want to pivot one second uh, to one of those groups in that contested plane that you have made mention of before. You know, my mother's name is Althea Williams. And named after, obviously, Althea Gibson, the first black woman to win Wimbledon. Mm. And my daughter and I were watching Serena Williams last night. And my daughter is three and a half years old, about to turn four soon in October. And just really into it. And it just, it brings me back to something you said on the Burn It All Down podcast. You said you wanted to feature in your book some semblance of balance in terms of women athletes and men athletes. Because women athletes are such a part of this. 
Can you talk about the history and impact of female athletes speaking out and why they're often so overlooked in the media? Hugely. I mean, first and foremost, you know, there wouldn't be a, a Black Lives Matter movement without the heroic intervention of black women. I mean, as leaders and as organizers of that movement. So it also shouldn't surprise us that in the world of athletics, uh, you also have the presence of women athletes taking a lead on a lot of different planes, particularly at the collegiate level. I mean, I wanted the book because I couldn't interview everybody, but it was so important to me that the book be representative of who actually was out there doing the work. And so, yeah, there were football players, but there were also a lot of softball players. There were also a lot of women's soccer players. There were also a lot of people from the cheer squad. And that was another really interesting story is that oftentimes the cheerleaders took a knee because the football team wouldn't because they were scared about losing their scholarship. And there would be debates with the football team. And a lot of the cheer squad said, well, if you're not going to step up, then we will. Dave, what's an example of that? They, tell me a story around that, because that's, that's really intriguing. Howard University is, one, is just one of, of many cheer stories I have in the book. And I, I spoke to a young woman named Sydney Stallworth, uh, and her story was so gratifying because she taught me something. She taught me that to be a cheerleader is not just about saying, go team. It's about being the face of your institution, the forward-looking face when thousands of people come from off campus to see the football team. Mm. And for the students at Howard during this period, things were not okay. You know, there were protests in D.C. where I live on an almost nightly basis, and there was a lot of pain in the community. And the football team wanted to do something. But at the last moment, they, they got cold feet. And I'm not going to judge them for that because you are taking a risk uh, anytime you protest, particularly as a scholarship athlete. Uh, but at the same time, and this is a darn shame, Jay, but it's the risk that gives the protest its power. Yeah. If that, that's why if, if, you know, when Nancy Pelosi took a knee wearing a kente cloth, I mean, who, who really cared? At that no point, she, was, she wasn't risking. There's no risk there. If George Clooney makes a speech at the Oscars, who cares? You know, fine, good. You know, noise in the air, more noise. Uh, but when an athlete does it, there's a risk factor and there's a tradition. And that imbues it with an importance that other protests just do not carry. And according to Sidney Stallworth, like when they saw that the football team wasn't going to act, they felt a responsibility at Howard to act. So people wouldn't think that, okay, you have protests going on all around Howard and on the campus of Howard, which is right in the middle of DC for folks who don't know, but that it was actually in this athletic space as well. And that was going to be represented. And I'll never forget, Sydney said that she was nervous afterwards. She didn't know what the reaction would be. And then she went to a local coffee shop just off Howard's campus and someone had posted up a big photo of her on the bulletin board. And the, the barista was like, oh, is, is that you up there taking the knee? And, you know, like sto stories like that are what are, are you know, it really make me happy because not every story, a lot of the stories have rough endings of athletes who took a knee in terms of what happened to them and their families. But this was one of the good ones. And sometimes bravery does reap uh, just rewards. So, Dave, I want to back up for a second and provide our audience some context. 
In 2011, you co-wrote a book with track legend John Carlos. He and Tommy Smith raised the Black Power Fist in the 1968 Olympics on the podium receiving their medals just six months after Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. It was such an act of bravery, and that image is completely iconic. But there was a lesser-known protest during that time, led by female track star Wyomia Tyus. She actually ran wearing black shorts as her own protest against racial injustice, and it's rarely talked about. Well, let's talk about the disrespect that Ty, as her friends call her, received. And that disrespect to me is best seen in 1988, not 1968. Because in 1988, Carl Lewis, uh, the the great Carl Lewis, won the 100-meter dash for the second straight Olympics. And this was highlighted like, oh, the first person ever to win the 100 in consecutive Olympics. When it's like, Wyoming Atias is right there. Ty did it in 64 and 68. And yet, because she's a woman, maybe? Or was it because after she won her second gold in 68 in the 4 by 100 relay, that she held up her medals and said, we dedicate these to John Carlos and Tommy Smith. And this was a huge deal, not only because it showed solidarity as Carlos and Smith were being excoriated uh, throughout the Olympic Village and throughout to the point of which they had to leave Mexico City with their families uh, because it just was not a safe atmosphere. Not only was it huge for that reason, but it was also huge because uh, the movement itself, which is sometimes referred to as the revolt of the black athlete, uh, did a very poor job of reaching out to black women and black women athletes. It was largely a male movement. And this is something that people who are involved in that movement, like John Carlos, very much regret to this day because they know they would have been stronger by enlisting that kind of help. And believe me, Wyoming Atias was very aware that her and her colleagues had not been reached out to hmm. In the in the lead up to those Olympic Games. And so the fact that she still spoke out, it also taught a lesson to the people who were part of the movement about an opportunity wasted, given the the incredible human capital and strength that existed on the women's side of the USA track and field team. I want to go to the WNBA for a second, because Brittany Griner is still being held captive in Russia. And Dave, being on TV, and actually, you know, Lindsay Kagawa Colas is her agent. Her and I mm-hmm. talk all the time about, you know, the action items that are in place. And for the longest time, that there was no contact between this administration and her wife, and the lack of communication, and a lot of the anger and frustration that existed in how you go about this negotiation. What does this say about how American sports teams and leagues value women athletes? Mm. I, I've been writing about this since the first day I heard what happened to Brittany Griner. And, you know, and I'm very good friends with Sue Hovey, who wrote Brittany Griner's book with her, a terrific memoir. So, you know, definitely I've been following Brittany Griner's career since Baylor. And the situation that she's in right now is horrific. And what I always believed from the start is that. There was a wing of the sports world that loved Brittany Griner too much and a wing of the sports world that didn't love Brittany Griner enough. And let me explain what I mean by that. Brittany Griner has a serious fan base of people who are utterly passionate about her well-being, not to mention colleagues throughout the, the WNBA who want the best for her. 
And they were told upon news of Brittany Griner's detention by the State Department to not speak out. Mm-hmm. That, and I'm sure you're very familiar with this. Yes. They were told that you got to keep it quiet because this is the way we're going to bring Brittany Griner home. I disagreed with that at the time and was very concerned about that and wrote about it because tactically that concerned me because I, you know, I was speaking a lot, not because of my own thoughts, but or my own theories, but I was speaking a lot to hostage negotiators, people who'd been hired by the State Department for similar situations. What were they saying, Dave? Oh my goodness. They were saying, whoa, this strategy by the State Department is wrongheaded because it doesn't really take into account the fact that our relations with Russia are in a very terrible place because at that time was the very start of Russia's invasion into Ukraine and we're arming Ukraine in response to that, and there are all sorts of threats going back and forth between Putin and Biden and the like. And so the idea that we were going to find some two guys were just going to sit down and work out our freedom, that just didn't seem very likely. So then what's the alternative strategy? The alternative strategy is to raise her name to the heavens and be as loud as possible and try to create some form of social pressure, both on the Biden administration to make sure that Brittany Griner's freedom is at the top of their to-do list and on Putin himself. But Dave, doesn't didn't that didn't that essentially give Russia and Putin leverage because isn't that yes. what they want? Don't they want to exemplify egg on the face of the United States yes. of America? Absolutely. And that that's the risk. I mean, we're talking about a series of bad choices. Yeah. Uh do you stay silent and let Brittany Griner just effectively rot behind bars in a justice system that has very little in common with the word justice? Or do you raise her name and make sure the Biden administration is doing everything they can? I mean, clearly there's been a dramatic shift in strategy. I mean, I can tell you the difference between the NCAA Women's Final Four, where it was almost eerie about people not mentioning Britney's name. Um, I know someone there who was handing out free Britney Griner buttons. People were scared to take them. I mean, like a real sense of like, we are not allowed to talk about this. Like the gap between that and then the w- and then when the mm. WNBA season started and the way it shifted dramatically was really about a shift that occurred with the Griner family, with Britney's wife, Sherelle, uh, saying enough is enough. I'm tired of being silent about this. I feel like the Biden administration is not doing all it, all it can to free Britney. And we need to be loud about this, less to pressure Putin than to pressure Biden uh, Anthony Blinken, the State Department, and all the rest of it. So that's the section yeah. of the sports world that loved Brittany Griner so much that they they were just waiting to speak out about her and frustrated that they couldn't speak out, but willing to be silent, even though it went against their every instinct and every emotion because they wanted to see her freed. Oh. And I respect that. I respect that. But then you've got the sports world that just didn't love Brittany Griner enough. And that to me is far more damning. I did an interview with her during the time of George Floyd. And when I tell you, it was one of the most thought provoking interviews I had ever done. You know, her father was a police officer Mm -hmm. and she talked about really having a hard time as relating to what the police that she knew stood for in society and how it was being politicized and charged of a conversation while also dealing with being a black woman and being part of the LGBTQ community and dealing with those challenges as well. And she was almost split in how she looked at it. And it was a very, you know, at the time where people had extreme takes, it was a very conservative kind of middle grounded approach Mm -hmm. that I wish more people would have heard because they would have 
seeing the good of both areas, but like it didn't get the attention that I feel like somebody like Brittany Griner deserved. That makes sense. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense. And I would say that we could even say that about a ton of WNBA athletes who stood up bravely. I mean, it was WNBA athletes who protested during the anthem before Kaepernick yes. did. They didn't take a knee. They wore black shirts and held hands. And they also pledged, at least the Minnesota Lynx pledged, and this is an amazing protest, that they would only talk to media after the games if it was about politics. Like they actually wouldn't talk about the game. It had to be about political action and what we needed to do to confront racial inequity and police brutality. But that, that certainly hasn't been written about or discussed as the legacy of 2016 and the intersection of the Black Lives Matter movement and sports. So, you know, and, and that gets to what I was saying about a section of the sports world loved her so much and a section of the sports world just didn't love her enough. Hmm. If that was Tom Brady or Steph, oh, yeah. there would be a counter uh, on sports shows where they would have like the number of days they were behind bars. Dave Zirin is clearly someone who thrives in finding nuance and coming to terms with hypocrisy in sports. And we need more people like him in our society. More importantly, he has done the work. For his 11 books, he's spoken with damn near everyone in the world of sports and politics. But I had to ask him what keeps him tuning into sports when so much of his work is critical of team owners, the sports media, really the entire business of sports. And I asked this for many of us. How do you stay a fan when the business of sports can feel so incredibly unjust? More after the break. This is The Limits from NPR. I'm Jay Williams. You better stay with us. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Progressive. What if comparing car insurance rates was as easy as putting on your favorite podcast? With Progressive, it is. Just visit their website to get a quote with all the coverages you want. You'll see Progressive's direct rate, and their tool will provide options from other companies so you can compare. Then just choose the rate and coverage you like. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Comparison rates not available in all states or situations. Prices vary based on how you buy. This message comes from NPR sponsor Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. Listen to Embedded for moments that stay with you. I could smell the smoke. I could smell the dust. Voices that resonate. <laughs> Stories that change the way you think about your life. How, how did we get here? The Embedded Podcast is NPR's home for original documentary series. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to The Limits. I'm Jay Williams, and we're back with sports writer and author Dave Zirin. So here's the question of the day. How the hell does a Mets-obsessed kid from New York come to make a living by critiquing the culture surrounding sports? We're also going to talk about player safety and new measures in the NFL to prevent CTE, the lasting brain damage that many players end up with. Plus, our worries as we raise our own kids to be athletes. You got to hear this. Back to the show. 
obviously you look at sports through the lens of politics and civil rights and gender equality and critiques of capitalism and all that is very important. How the hell do you balance that with just being a sports fan? I live in a world called hypocrisy and <laughs> that, and I have to be comfortable with that hypocrisy. And that hypocrisy is rooted in the fact that I grew up playing sports. I grew up loving sports and sports run just so deep in my DNA. I mean, I grew up in New York city of the 1980s. That means the 86 Mets. That oh, means you're a Mets fan. Uh, yes. Okay. We have a chance this year. That's yes, good. we do. Okay. And it's going to happen. And and I grew up with uh, Lawrence Taylor, for goodness sakes. I'm not a Giants fan. I was just a Lawrence Taylor fan going Understood. around with my number 56. I had a collage of Bernard King on my wall when I was nine years old. I mean, th th these sports run really deep in my DNA. It's baked into my cake of who I am as a person. And so I always believe that sports is art the way opera is art. Yet you never hear people say, hey, you have a lot of critiques of movies, for example, and the way they're made. Why do you watch movies? Hmm. You never hear that. But you do hear that asked about people who have critiques of sports, like you critique sports. How do you justify liking sports? And it's because I don't want to reject sports. I want to reclaim it. And I would never reject art, even if art is profoundly distorted by the society and by that we live in and by injustice, because art is what makes us human. Art is what makes life worth living. And I believe that sports needs to have that kind of a critique where you want to reclaim it and reclaim what's best about it. Because sports is like fire. And you know fire can burn down your house, mm -hmm. but fire can also cook a five-star meal. <laughs> and so it's about how you use it. Let's talk about the art of living. You know, obviously the NFL has been struggling with some CTE issues. It's been well documented. The first NFL game of the year is September 8th. The Rams are facing the Bills. It's going to be one hell of a game, Matthew Stafford versus Josh Allen. Um, but this year has been a little bit different. Have you seen any benefits from these new foam helmets that players have been wearing at, at you know training camp or anything else that have been keeping players safe? I certainly hope so. I mean, I think we have to, we, we need more data. We need more time with it. Uh, we need to see how players respond to it. You know, we've heard, you know, some gripings towards it uh, from players. Uh, we've heard other ones say that they're glad they have something that keeps us safe. But, you know, I'm, I'm dealing with this in a way that's very personal right now because, you know, I, I mean, I, I've got a million critiques of the NFL. I, I have a movie coming out, Jay, called Behind the Shield, a documentary hmm. about the NFL that uh, that we'll see if anybody sees it. But the point is, is that it's like basically a 90 minute critique in the NFL. And so this is my life is pointing out these problems with the NFL with regards to gender, race, head injuries, all of it. And at the same time, my son is the 14 year old JV quarterback at Montgomery Blair High School. Wow. And this is his dream. I mean, this is the fruits of me saying to my son as he grew up, you know, there are a lot of problems with the NFL. Now it's Sunday at one o'clock. Let's watch, you know, because that's basically been my life with my child is explaining the problems, but also enjoying the product. Mm -hmm. And for him, the product has won out over the critique. And now I just pray he stays safe. When I see some defensive linemen, when I see these guys who are 6'5", 320, like run a 4'4", I'm like, what the hell is going on here? To, yeah. to, that, that precision 
could slightly be off, and that is life altering. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you even practice, even with good habits? The elements of the game take you in so many different ways. How do you even prepare your son for those type of things as they happen? Yeah, I mean, the the the, the future of the sport depends upon people developing these good habits and not hurting each other because the game is bigger, stronger, faster. Interviewing Jim Brown for a book I wrote about Jim Brown called Last Man Standing. Dave, I just have to interject for a second. For those of you who don't know, that's NFL legend and former Cleveland Browns running back Jim Brown, one of the greatest ever to do it. Go ahead, Dave. And Jim Brown had a lot of contempt for the softness of the modern football player, as he put Hmm. it. And this was the only time I ever dared challenge Jim Brown. Most of the time I was just listening. And I said to him, I said, but Mr. Brown, I mean, these players today were not around when you were coming up. I mean, these players today, like you said, 6'5", 300, you know, running the 4'4". I mean, the amount of physical damage that can be done to another human body when you have somebody that big, that strong, and that fast I mean, really demands a proper technique, or we're going to be talking about players, uh, about paralysis and even death uh, in a way that would potentially destroy the league. And that's why the league is so set on these bigger helmets and all the rest of it. It's because there is an existential crisis at the highest levels of the National Football League that maybe this sport will not always exist. If the sport is seen as so unsafe that parents stop having their kids Mm -hmm. play, that the league starts having a dwindling amount of talent, that more people feel a sense of moral confusion about watching the sport. I mean, all of that is on the table if the athlete is just, is fully immiserated in the process. And already, obviously, there's so much of that in the sport. I once had a player say to me that playing in the NFL means you go from being young to being old and you just skip middle age. There's no doubt they are modern day gladiators. But I, I yeah. do want to dig a little bit deeper into what football means for me because football, that word sure. has always meant international football. It's meant soccer ah. to me. And <laughs> we have the World Cup coming up in Qatar in November and December. Specifically, you've detailed the disastrous human rights record over in Qatar Given that people will still be tuning in, what should they know, Dave? I mean, they have to know that dozens of workers, largely from Bangladesh, uh, have had their passports taken away when they enter the country, haven't been paid, been forced to live in horrific conditions, and dozens have died just in the construction of the stadiums that you're seeing in Qatar. And what Hmm. that's connected to is a much broader system of labor abuses that exists throughout the country where they go. I mean, Qatar is a very rich petro state. So where do you find the workers in a very wealthy petro state? You go to countries that are immiserated in poverty. You bring them over by the thousands to do the actual work needed for a society to run. And since Qatar has even been has even been awarded the World Cup, there are estimates that put the number of labor deaths as high as six thousand. Wow! That have just taken place in the country in the years since they got the World Cup, with, as I said, dozens taking place for just the construction of the stadiums themselves. But there's a flip side that people need to be also aware of. Because of the very brave work of international labor organizations and Amnesty International, the existence of the World Cup has allowed for a spotlight on these labor abuses like nothing in the history of the country or even the region. And that has led at least to 
promises of reform. Now, far too often with these mega events, whether they're in China or the United States for that matter, you see these promises of what will be what they call the legacy of the Olympics or the legacy of the World Cup. Now, sometimes that legacy comes to pass. Far too often, it simply does not come to pass. So the hope here, there's been a lot of terrific reporting about Qatar. The hope here is that people won't turn away to the next issue and will keep a light on what happens in the years to come there because that's where you get into real serious trouble. Like once people feel like the cameras are gone and can go back to business as usual. As you continue to do this and have this role within the sports industry, what kind of effect do you hope to have when it's all said and done? I just, I just hope that I can continue, even in this era of microdata, to be able to write a graceful sentence and maybe change your mind or two so people can think about the world in a different way through sports. My, my goals could not be more humble you know, I just want to clear the lowest possible hurdle to just make people think a little bit about the sports that they consume. Dave, I appreciate your words of wisdom. I appreciate your insight, how informative you are. And we have to do this again, my man. This was a treat today. I'd love to. And Jay, let me tell you, uh, I, th I think you're as good as it gets in terms of doing this work. And you, you give me hope that the former athlete can fill the role that's needed to be filled because far too often, as you well know, it's the former athlete can get jobs ahead of the person who didn't play, but who has something to say. And sometimes that can be frustrating, but then I see you doing the work and I'm like, okay, we can make this work. There is a sweet spot that does exist with really, really good journalism and somebody who actually played the game and can speak about it from that perspective. Well, I appreciate your kind words, Dave, and, and you and I are going to connect after this because I, I want to continue the work. Mm -hmm. Like what are plausible strategies that we can actually implement to create change? And that's the work and it's worth doing. Mm. And the one thing people can do, it's so easy to do, is to be a sports fan that sees yourself as a subject of the sports world and not an object of the hmm. sports world. You, even as a fan, are an agent of change. You are somebody that can support athletes who are bringing politics in the sports world. You are someone who can demand justice in the sports world. We got to remember, these games belong to all of us. We cannot be passive observers because the stakes are too high. You know, there's an old expression, you better turn on the politics or politics will turn on you. Hmm. I think people have to turn onto the politics of sports or the politics of sports will turn on us. That's Dave Zirin, sports editor for The Nation magazine and host of the Edge of Sports podcast, closing out with one hell of a mic drop. His most recent book is called The Kaepernick Effect, Taking a Knee, Changing the World. I want to give a big shout out to Dave for making this one go down. And here's a challenge I present to all of you as listeners. Let's do the work. Let's stay informed. And let's hold each other accountable for both. In this week's Plus episode, we discuss activist athletes from an earlier generation whose stories resurfaced in the wake of Colin Kaepernick taking a knee. You don't want to miss that. And as always, remember, stay positive and let's keep it moving. The Limits is produced by Devin Schwartz, Mano Sundaresan, and Lena Sunsgiri. Our executive producers are Karen Kenny, Vera Lynn Williams, and Yolanda Sangueni. Our senior VP of programming and audience development is Anya Grumman. Music by Ramteen Arab Louie. Special thanks to Christina Hardy, Rudy Correa, and Charlotte Rigby. 
This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Lisa, in collaboration with West Elm. Discover the new natural hybrid mattress, expertly crafted from natural latex and certified safe foams, designed with your health and the planet in mind. Visit leesa.com to learn more. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. With Capella's FlexPath Learning Format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Why is everyone so obsessed with traditional wives or trad wives on social media? This week, we're talking about the viral videos of women making marshmallows and mozzarella from scratch and how behind the sheen of calm kitchens and cute fits, there's some interesting pessimism about our modern world. And that's worth digging into. Next time on It's Been a Minute from NPR.